open our eyes? Would you transform our hearts that we would be more like Christ? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. If you would join me in your Bibles in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 17. Luke 17 is where we will be this morning. I know some of those hymns were a little less familiar this morning, but we selected those on purpose to to, to remind us of a, a, a phrase that comes up at the end of our text. Verse 10 says that we are to say we're unprofitable servants, we're, we're unworthy. And, and all the hymns this morning reminded us of that fact. It's not really something we like to think about, is it? We, we, we like to think of ourselves as sort of deserving God's kindness, deserving God's favor, but the, the Scripture simply won't allow us, and we need to be reminded of, of that truth. Would you go ahead and just stand with me one final time as we read God's Word? You know, I have, a, I have a habit of preaching for a really long time, so you, this is your last chance to kind of get some exercise. We also want to honor the Word of God. I like to do this from time to time to remind us, hey, we are God's people. We're a family. We're not just a collection of individuals here today, but we are one body. We are one family, and we are together under the Word of God, that Jesus is our King, and He rules His church by His Word. So follow along. Luke 17, we'll read the first 10 verses. Hear the Word of the Lord. And He said unto His disciples... It's impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he be cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. If he repent, forgive him. If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. The apostle said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say to him by and by when he has come in from the field, Go and sit down to meat? Will he not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith that I may sup, and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards thou shalt eat and drink? Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not, that is to say, I I think not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded of you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. You may be seated. So come to this section in uh, Luke's Gospel. Jesus has been going back and forth, giving instruction to the disciples, giving instruction and rebuke to the Pharisees. And these verses, maybe at first glance, feel like a random laundry list of stuff. Like, you know, you got the list at home, right? How many of you are list people? I am a list people, where you've got, you know, take out the trash, and oh, I need to mow the lawn, and just sort of random things get thrown together. It sort of feels like these ten verses are unconnected and don't, don't have anything tying them together until we recognize the bigger picture of what's going on in Luke. If you back up to chapter 14... Uh, Jesus has had this encounter with the Pharisees. He speaks to the multitudes in verse 25. Chapter 15, the, the, the publicans, the sinners are all dra- drawing near, and then the, the Pharisees and scribes in verse 2, they're murmuring, they're grumbling about it. So all of chapter 15, Jesus is rebuking and refuting the, the legalism and the pride and the unforgiving attitude of the Pharisees. In chapter 16, verse 1, he said unto his disciples, so he's gone from... Addressing the Pharisees to addressing the disciples. Then verse 14, the Pharisees, they were covetous. They heard these things. They derided him. So we've gone, 
you know, Pharisees, disciples, Pharisees, and now we come back in chapter 17 to addressing the disciples. There's been this back and forth contrast between disciples, Christians, here's how you are supposed to live, and then Pharisees, here's how they're responding and reacting to Jesus. So here's what I think is going on here in chapter 17. This is not just Luke being like, hey, I've got all these sort of sayings of Jesus, let me just sort of throw them into a blender. No, this here is concluding a section that has been giving us this back and forth comparison between here's how the Pharisees respond to Jesus and here's how disciples are supposed to live. There is to be a fundamental difference between Pharisees and disciples, between genuine Christians and fakers, right, between hypocrites. I guarantee you this, if you have conversations with anybody for any length of time and you're trying to, you know, maybe give the gospel to them, they'll be like, you know what, I I did the church thing, but... There were so many hypocrites in the church. Um, I've heard that before. And guess what? It's true, right? The church does have hypocrites in it. But listen, there is to be a distinction between disciples, genuine believers, and hypocrites, those who put on a mask and fake it, right? And so Jesus is telling the disciples, sort of if you think about how the Pharisees behaved, these 10 verses are saying, you guys need to be different. These are almost like tests. These are almost like ways you can evaluate your own heart to say, am I, am I a Pharisee? Or am I a disciple? Am I a follower of Jesus? Or am I a hypocrite? Am I, am, I a, am I a fake? So this comes at the end of that back and forth. Now, verse 11 will resume that theme of the travel. It came to pass as he went to Jerusalem. Remember what's going on in this whole section of Luke, these 10 chapters. We have Jesus traveling to Jerusalem for the, the Passion Week. And when we get these reminders of, and by the way, he's traveling, it's almost like we begin a new little subunit. So this is wrapping up this unit, this this section of the, the journey to Jerusalem, with this concluding paragraph about disciples, you're different than Pharisees. Christians, you're different than hypocrites, or you ought to be. So what is it that makes us different? How should we be different than a hypocrite, than a, than a faker? Well, let me tell you, it's more than just theology. The, the, the Pharisees actually had pretty decent theology in, in many ways. Unlike the Sadducees, they believed the entire Old Testament. The Sadducees only took the, the Torah. Pharisees were like, hey, we accept the entire Old Testament. So did Jesus. The Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, believed in miracles, right? The Sadducees were like the theological liberals who were like, eh, miracles don't happen. The Pharisees were like, yeah, no, God does do miracles. There is going to be a resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in taking God's word seriously. Except they were a bunch of hypocrites, right? And they added all of their own rules to God's word. So the difference is not simply one of theology, not simply one of believing the right things on paper or subscribing to a certain doctrinal statement. It's more serious than that. It goes down to the heart. So here's some distinguishing characteristics of a genuine disciple. Let's walk through them here in this paragraph. A disciple, number one, must avoid ensnaring others. Must avoid ensnaring others. These first couple of verses, Jesus uses this word offenses. He says, it's impossible that offenses will come. Now, we use the word offended in the year 2021 for anything we don't like. Like, oh, that offended me. Like, I can't believe you said that. That really harmed me. That really hurt me. He's not using the word in that sense. The word that's translated offenses in verse 1 is the word scandalon, right? We get the word scandal from it. And originally, the term referred to the, uh, the bait stick on a trap, right? You put the little cheese on the thing for the mouse. The mouse comes and gets the cheese and then just walks. No, it's supposed to catch the mouse but okay so it's the it's the it's the it's the 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 bit on the trap that sets the trap off it came to refer to an enticement to sin right it came to refer to something that would cause someone else to stumble spiritually in fact it's often called a stumbling block it's often rendered 
that way. So these are things that might bring destruction or harm to someone else's faith. Jesus is saying, hey, in a fallen world, stuff is going to happen that is going to bring spiritual harm to others. You cannot prevent it. You cannot say that it's never going to happen. It it is inevitable. Offenses, these uh, ensnarements are inevitable. Think about the scandals that have happened in the church of Jesus Christ that have resulted in many people rejecting the gospel. I mentioned the hypocrites in the church. That would be an example where someone, they were in church, they were trying to learn, and then there's just this latent hypocrisy where they're just like, you know what, if that's how Christians behave, I'm done. That would be exactly what Jesus is talking about. Or it could be situations where, you know, big mega churches are purporting to preach the gospel. It's just about the money. They're exposed, and people are like, if that's Christianity, boom, I'm done. Jesus is saying, in a fallen world, that kind of thing is going to happen. It might be something doctrinal where someone takes the Bible and then twists the Bible to their own ends. It happens all over. Ways to manipulate spiritual and religious abuse. These are shocking sins that discredit the name of Jesus and lead people to reject the truth. Now, the Pharisees were guilty of precisely this. Through their hypocrisy, through their duplicity, they were making it hard for people to come to Jesus. Remember the the tax collectors and sinners? They're coming to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees are like, grumble, grumble, grumble. They don't want that to happen. They're trying to keep people from the truth. They are bringing offense. They're bringing scandal. Jesus is saying, disciples, don't be that way. Now, he starts off by saying, it's impossible that that they won't come. Like, this is guaranteed. It is inevitable. In a fallen world, people are going to sin. And it very well may put a tripping hazard in your path. But just because sin is inevitable does not mean that it is excusable. Right? I'll say that again. Just because sin is inevitable does not mean it is excusable. You'll hear people say this sometimes. You know, everyone's a sinner, so we ought to just give that person a pass. Who are we to judge? Sin's inevitable, so we're going to excuse it. No, Jesus says, look at the second part of verse 1. But woe unto him through whom they come. He says, there is going to be judgment that comes on those who cast scandal in front of the way of other people, those who bait a trap through their own sin that brings harm, spiritual harm to another person. Verse 2 is one of the most stunning verses in what Jesus says. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. Okay, we don't use millstones, but... You know, because you, you go to Walmart, you get your flour, and you might not even buy just buy the bread, right? We don't even think about how it's made. But in the ancient world, you'd get your wheat, you'd put it on a big rock, and then there would be a big top stone that was round that would grind the wheat that a, that a donkey would actually pull. Or Samson, he, they, they, they put him to work grinding the wheat, turning the mill. It's a big rock. This is not the kind of rock that you just pick around and carry. It's not a pebble that goes in your pocket, okay? We're dealing with a big rock that if this were hung around your neck, thrown in the sea... Drowning. We're talking about like mafia-style, you know, concrete boots kind of, kind of death. Jesus is saying, you would be better off to face that kind of demise than to face the wrath of a holy God if you have caused spiritual harm to someone else through your sin. Man, that's serious, right? The Pharisees were guilty of that. Jesus is saying, be better off to die a mafia-style death, then you should offend. Now, that's not just, oh, you offended me, but that is spiritual harm to one of these little ones. Now, all the commentators I read were like, one of these little ones, this is just referring to, to young Christians. But in the parallel passages in Matthew 18 and in Mark chapter 9, Jesus has literally just brought a little children into the midst of his disciples to say, hey, these are the kinds of people who enter the kingdom. 
those who bring spiritual harm on children by sinning against them, Jesus says, will face a very fierce penalty. So offenses are there. Yeah, they're inevitable, but he says they are inexcusable. Better to die than to do that. So then verse 3 goes on to say, take heed to yourselves. Now, I kind of think that that should go with verse 2. He's saying, okay, these, are the, the, these scandals, these ensnarements, they're going to come. God's going to judge those who bring them. But you disciples, watch for yourself lest you be the one that brings it. I think that's what that take heed to yourselves refers to. If that's the case, if my sin has the potential to bring spiritual harm to other people, and if that happens, God's going to bring some kind of judgment, man, I better pay really close attention to my life. It says a disciple is one who, the Pharisees didn't care about what their actions did to other people. They didn't care that if they kept people from Jesus or if they mistaught young people. They didn't care. He said, disciples, you do care about how your actions affect other people. Watch over yourself. Guard your heart. Watch over the garden of your heart, lest the seeds of sin find fertile soil. Watch over your lives, lest patterns of sin become deeply rooted. And guess what? We can't do this alone. Take heed to yourself. This is actually a plural. So it's not just, hey, all of you as individuals, kind of in your own way, just watch over yourself. We all have blind spots, don't we? Right? Think of the analogy that from your mirror. You know, you're driving down the road. You want to change lanes. Just the way people drive in Mobile, I always look over my shoulder lest someone just suddenly zipped around me on the right lane or something weird. You, you take a look to check your blind spot because even if you have a blind spot mirror, I'm still like, I don't know if I can really trust it, right? We, we, we have blind spots in our lives, areas in our lives that we maybe can be sort of oblivious to ways where we are drifting. We need other people to be like, hey, did you think about what you said there, that that actually came across this way? Hey, I, I've been noticing that you've been missing church services or just kind of rolling in, you know, 15 minutes after the service starts and they're not fellowshipping with it. People, people begin to notice things in your life that suggest before it becomes a major issue, you can deal with it. I think that's what Jesus is calling to. He's calling us to a lifestyle of accountability. Listen, if all you do is come to church, sit through a sermon, and then go home, you're missing half the point of church, right? Which, which according to... Hebrews 10 is that we, would, that we would exhort one another in Hebrews 3, and we would watch over one another, and that we would provoke one another to love and to good works. Like, you should, you should have conversations with other believers after the service today where you are encouraging them in their walk with Jesus, where you're asking them, how's, how's their devotional life going? Before we ever cause scandal to someone else, I can almost guarantee that you stopped praying and reading the Bible. Almost always, the walk with Jesus begins to grow cold, and then sin begins to grow hot. It's not a bad thing for you to talk to brothers and sisters in Christ. Hey, tell me what you're reading in the Bible, and they're like, hey, I've not been reading. That could be a way to stir up the the, the love for Jesus and the walk with Jesus before sin grows. So Jesus is saying, guard yourself lest you be the one who brings that harm on other people people. That's why we have regular gatherings of God's people. That's why we have monthly communion, so we have a time every month where we pause to say, I'm going to examine my heart. It's why you need a daily time in the Word of God. So question for you. Are there ways in your life that you are pushing people away from Jesus? Ways that you behave, ways that you talk, sins that are in your life, things that people know about you that are, that are, that are leading people to be like, well, if so-and-so is at Cloverleaf Church, I don't want anything to do with it. 
Are there things that you are maybe doing inadvertently that are, where there's drifting going on in your life and you need someone to be like, hey, let's get a hold of this before this becomes a, a real issue? Are there sins in your life that besmirch the name of Jesus? Jesus is saying a disciple takes that seriously. He refuses to be the, the cause of someone else being ensnared, being trapped. But here's a second distinguishing characteristic of a disciple that sets us off from hypocrites, from Pharisees. It's this, a disciple forgives. Now, it almost seems shocking after verse 2 where he's like, someone who harms kids, millstones, bodies of water. And then he says uh, in verse 3, if your brother sins against you, forgive him. We're talking about sort of two different categories of sin, one that destroys the faith of another. Verse 3, your your brother sins. Right? We're we're talking about a brother and sister in Christ, someone who's, who's a member of the community, someone else in this church, just to quantify it. Do you know that Christians still sin? I know it's shocking, but we... We, we sin, right? All of us sin. And inadvertently, if you're in this church for any length of time, someone will sin against you. Maybe unintentionally. Maybe intentionally. Maybe someone will sort of like start gossiping about you and you're like, oh, what are you doing talking about me behind my back? Or someone will, you know, ignore you or, 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 or some little slight. Or maybe something that really does hurt that damages the relationship. Just because Christians have been forgiven does not mean that Christians are perfect. Right? There, there, are going to be, there, there is going to be sin that is done against you. And so verse 3, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Rebuke him, right? We have this responsibility to each other. We need to love each other enough to say, I'm going to value the relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ to such a degree that I'm willing to actually go to that person and have that conversation. Now, some, some offenses, frankly, don't require a rebuke. 1 Peter 4, 8 says that love covers a multitude of sins. So there are some sins that will be committed against you that don't require, okay, we're going to really have a confrontation. You didn't shake my hand. Like, okay, that, that maybe could be something you just let it go, or you forgot my birthday, and I'm, I'm, love covers a multitude of sins. So how do you tell? Is an offense something that, that I need to sort of just let it go and, and let love cover that and say, you know what? Uh, and when, when does it rise to the occasion where I need to go to that brother or sister in Christ and rebuke them? I need to go and confront them and try to work this out. Isn't that a, that's an important question. Let me give you some questions to maybe ask to help you discern when, whether an offense is a, I'm going to let love cover it, and no, I need to go and rebuke that person and, and secure repentance and, and restoration. Ask this, was their sin inadvertent or intentional? And by the way, you might assume something is intentional that really was inadvertent. If you're not sure, go talk to them. They might be they may be like, no, that is not what I meant. I'm so sorry that I said that. Uh, here's another question. Did it bring lasting damage or can you simply move on? Like, okay, someone sins against you in such a way where you're just like, I, I have a hard time being able to talk. The relationship, the dynamic of the relationship has changed to such a degree. Okay, maybe you need to go... Actually, not just maybe, you definitely need to go and talk to them. But if it's something that, hey, you know what, I can move on and talk to them tomorrow and it, doesn't, it hasn't changed the relationship, let love cover that multitude of offenses. Has the relationship been altered by the sin? Here's another question to ask yourself. Are you being regularly reminded of what they've done? Listen, if every time you, you walk into church and you're like, man, every time I see Pastor Ryan, I'm just like, oh, man, I can't believe, you, you, you need to go talk to him. Something you're able to forgive and forget, like, hey, you move on. Here's an important question. Are they harming others through their sin? Right? Are they harming others through their sin? If this individual is continuing in that pattern, there are going to be uh, sort of other people who are run over by that bus. Well, 
you have a responsibility then to go to them, to rebuke them, because it's not just about you anymore. You're not being self. No, you have a duty to do that. Is there sin bringing shame to Christ? We've got to care about the, the reputation of Jesus more than we care about, you know, having an awkward conversation. Now, let's be honest, probably 99% of us in this room do not like to confront people. Uh, my favorite line from, well, not my, there, there's a lot of favorite lines I have from Toy Story. That's my childhood. But Rex says, I hate confrontation. Like, I feel that way when I have to confront. It's just like, I, I literally feel sick. I, it's like, I, it's hard, right, to have a conversation where you sit down with a brother in Christ to be like, all right, we've got to talk through something. I've got to lay out a sin that you've committed, and I want to see you repent. Now, why does Jesus say, if your brother sins against you, go and confront him? Because if you don't, bitterness will begin to grow in your heart. Sin begins to fester. And this is when you get situations where church splits happen, where people are like, I'm never talking to them again. Because a sin was committed, and the person who was sinned against did not have the courage to go and confront the other person. By the way, I'll just point your attention to the fact that rebuke him is an imperative. It is a command. So if you don't do this, it's not just, well, I'm being nice. No, you're being disobedient. Right? Failure to rebuke a brother who has sinned against you in a situation where love's not able to cover that multitude of sins is sin. Why do we refuse to obey it? Fear. The fear of man brings a snare. They might think that I'm judgmental, so I don't say anything. They might think that I'm arrogant, so I don't say anything. They might lash out in anger, so I don't say anything. We fear losing the relationship. But here's the deal. We need to love one another enough to say, I don't want to see my brother or sister continue in a place of sinning, bringing shame to the name of Jesus. I love them too much to do that, so I'm going to go to them and have that conversation. So Romans tells us that we should pursue peace with all of our hearts, that we should run after it. So refuse to just write someone off. Instead, go and talk to them. It shows that you value the relationship. Now, notice the goal. Back to the text. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repent, this tells me that the goal of the rebuke is not just, all right, I'm going to get this off my chest. The goal is not to get it off your chest, but it is to win their heart. Right? Which means that's going to, that's going to inform the way I go about doing this. So I can come in guns blazing and just, I'm going to blow you out of the water. I'm right. You're wrong, you heathen. Um, how many of you respond positively to being insulted? Like literally no one. Right? I was in a situation this past week where... I was in a meeting, and it wasn't involving anybody in this church, so just in case you're wondering. And, and somebody raised their voice, and then the other person responded by raising their voice, and then it just kind of escalated, and the whole room just kind of blew up like big, everybody was upset. Like, what if instead the other person instead of raising their voice was like, let me, all right, it's going to be far more effective to come to a person in humility and to come in an attitude of meekness with the goal of repentance. The goal is not being right, but it is to win the individual, not just win the argument. So don't come in self-righteous pride. This is why, why, why Paul in Galatians 6 says, if someone's overtaken in a fault, those who are spiritual, and spiritual does not mean I'm very spiritual, but it is, you're marked by love, joy, peace, long-suffering. It says those who are spiritual restore how? In an attitude of meekness, in an attitude of gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. It would be very easy for the tables to be turned, and you are in the situation of the brother who sinned. So Jesus goes on, saying disciples must forgive. Okay, if your brother sins, rebuke. That's the first responsibility. And then here's the second responsibility. And if he repents, verse 3, forgive him. If he, if he repents, forgive him. 
Again, forgive is the command. There is a readiness to forgive in the heart of a Christian, not like, okay, I'm going to go rebuke him, but I'm pretty sure he's not going to repent, and I'm just going to hold on. No, there is a readiness to say, I'm going to forgive and restore the relationship when there is repentance. What Jesus is saying in verse 4 is this. Repentance or, or, or forgiveness needs to be habitual and gracious and lavish. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day he turns to you saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. His repentance is going to be habitual. It's going to be regular. Now, the seven times is not to be like, all right, you've done this. I've told you seven times. Eight, number eight, nope, no more forgiveness. The, the, the number seven, of course, is symbolic to say as often as this happens. Now, you might read verse four to be like, well, obviously the individual is not repentant. No, Jesus says the individual here is genuinely repentant. There is a difference, by the way, between genuine repentance and just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, glib repentance. We need to be able to discern the two. Paul distinguishes them in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. We're talking about real, genuine repentance. This individual sins and they're genuinely repentant. They're the ones who says, and he turns to you. He's taking the initiative. He's trying to restore the relationship that you forgive. Again, we're not saying forgiving sin where there's been crimes that have been done, where people are continuing to be endangered. Interpersonal disputes. Someone comes to you again and again. You continue to fight for the relationship. So forgive habitually. The individual has repented. Forgive. Forgiveness for the Christian should be habitual. It should be boundless. It should be driven by the gospel. God has forgiven me. And think about your sin against God. Infinite. And God's forgiven it because of Jesus, because of the cross. And he's saying, in the same way, you get to show that forgiveness to others who have wronged you. So he says, forgive habitually. Forgive eagerly. Notice forgive is a command. We're not dealing with just a feeling. Well, I don't feel forgiving. No, forgiveness is a decision. It is not a feeling. It is an action, not merely an attitude. It's the decision to release the individual from owing me something. All right, so I can forgive someone without saying the relationship's all hunky-dory. Say, I, I'm not going to hold this against them. I'm not going to let bitterness take hold of my heart. While also recognizing there may need to be some boundaries here depending on what the sin is. There may be continued consequences for David. David sinned in some pretty horrible ways. God forgave him, but there were still consequences in David's life. So some people will try to use this as a hammer. They'll try to take this verse and turn it around on you to be like, you have to forgive me and therefore no more consequences. I get off scot-free. Someone who does that is not actually genuinely repentant, right? Genuine repentance means I'm willing to take the consequences that my sin deserves. Jesus puts both these truths together, both taking sin seriously and taking grace seriously. We have a tendency to sort of do one or the other, right? Where we're like, we're going to take sin really seriously, and man, we never forgive. The, the Pharisees were kind of there. Remember, the sinners are coming to Jesus, and they're like, oh, no, 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 those tax collectors, those, those guys are too bad. Jesus is like, no, I forgive, I welcome those people, so should my people. But we also take repentance seriously. Forgiveness and repentance are linked together, right? Jesus says we need to hold those two together, both repentance, taking sin seriously, and forgiveness, taking grace seriously. And depend, no matter who you are, one side of this equation will be hard for you. If you are, are, are a person who tends to like, like me, not like confrontation, rebuking is hard. And if you're a person who tends to be sort of prideful and very strong and very, have a very black and white view of the world, forgiveness is hard. Uh, it's, this is not easy for anyone, which is why in verse 5, and this brings us to our third distinguishing characteristic 
of a disciple, the, the apostle said unto the Lord, increase our faith. I think in light of what Jesus said about you need to watch over yourself, you need to be ready to forgive, they're like, man, this is, this is hard. This is, this is crazy hard. We don't have the ability in ourselves to forgive like that. We need more faith. A disciple has got to avoid ensnaring others. A disciple must forgive. A disciple, number three, must exercise faith. The apostle said unto the Lord, they're calling him the Lord, the master, recognizing his authority, increase our faith. Now, that presupposes they have some faith. They wouldn't be apostles if they had no faith. They have some faith, and they're saying, Jesus, would you help grow our faith? Remember the man in, in, in Mark? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Right? Our faith is sustained by God's grace. Faith is not like a human work where I'm like, well, I'm just going to try really hard to gin up more faith. You sometimes get the, you know, the faith healers on TV. If you just have enough faith, you can be healed and get a million dollars and do all these things. No, no faith is a, is a gift of God. It is something that is sustained by the promises of God and the grace of God. So they say, increase our faith. They request this faith. I kind of like this little glimpse at the apostles. The apostles are imperfect, right? You would get Peter saying all kinds of crazy stuff, like when his mouth is open, his foot is usually in it, right? Like we see that all over the place. But there is here a recognition of weakness, right? They're recognizing our faith is not where it needs to be. We believe, but help us to believe more. There's a mark of a genuine disciple. If you, in your mind, think about, man, where are the areas where I need to grow spiritually and you come up with a, pretty, a, a blank list? You might just be a Pharisee, right? If you can't think immediately of areas in your life where you're like, here's where growth needs to happen and steps I need to take, if you can't think of those, you might be a Pharisee. We, we saw back in the previous chapter, look at verse 15 of, of Luke 16. He said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees were like, we're good to go. We just want to make it look as good as we can to people around us. We can't think of any areas where we might need God's grace because we already have it. We're already in. God's impressed with us. Where disciples say, Lord, increase our faith. My faith is not where it needs to be. My obedience is not where it needs to be. I, I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing. I'm following after. Now, what they're not saying is we're just complete wretched failures. We never do anything right, and this is awesome. This is not a wallowing in sin just to wallow in sin. There is a balance here. Uh, it sort of has become in vogue in Christian circles to be like, hey, God's grace is unlimited, and so just sort of wallow in your sin, and that's a sign of humility. No, Real humility is saying, yes, I believe, but help me to grow more. Like There can be real growth and real obedience and a recognition for places where we need to grow. Can you think of places in your life? Can you, can you identify, like, just sort of, boom, I know where those areas are, where I need God's help. Call out to him to increase your faith, to grow you. So they do the right thing here to call out to him, to increase our faith. What is faith? Faith is reliance on God. It is reliance on his character and on his promises. It's not just sort of accepting it mentally, but it's sort of like complete and utter, uh, complete and utter reliance on all that he is, it is sort of collapsing into his arms. The disciples aren't disciples because they're perfect. They're disciples because they have seen their spiritual bankruptcy and have run to Jesus. J.C. Ryle describes faith this way. He says, faith is the hand with which the soul lays hold on Jesus Christ and is united to him and saved. It is the secret of all Christian comfort and spiritual prosperity. That's faith. 
Faith is not something we sort of offer to God as, God, I hope you're pleased with my faith. No, faith is saying, I ain't got anything, and I'm saying all I have is Christ. So faith is requested, but verse 6, Jesus responds in an unusual way. He said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you might say to this sycamine tree, this, this mulberry tree, be plucked up, planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus, in a sense, is saying, you don't need a greater quantity of faith. You need to act on the faith you already have. Sometimes we can sit around and be like, well, I'll get around to obeying God when God gives me more faith. And what Jesus is saying, no, you have faith. You need to simply step out and act on that faith. James Edwards notes, Christians, even apostles, are distinguished not by the quantity of faith, but by the employment of faith. Not by greatness or smallness of faith, but by acting on faith, even faith the size of a mustard seed. Now, look at the um, the images that are used in verse 6. Jesus compares faith to something that's proverbially small, the mustard seed. It's a little tiny seed. So if you have faith just like that, it's real faith. It's faith that is going to grow. That's how seeds work. And then he uses this example of the mulberry tree, rendered here the sycamine tree. Here's the thing about the mulberry trees. These were sort of proverbially, uh, for, for Jewish rabbis, like they, they epitomized trees that you could not uproot. How many of you have ever tried to dig a stump out before? Okay, some of you who have dug stumps out before, it's not just to like, hey, go out, I'll be, I'll be in in 15 minutes kind of a job. That's why like tree people have those stump grinders that just eat it up for you. That is hard work. These, uh, these mulberry trees... Man, they had, they had a root system that the rabbis believed would stick around for 600 years. The rabbis even had a rule about them, like, if you're going ha- to plant one of these, it needs to be 75 feet away from a well or cistern because those roots go so far out. If you've ever had roots in your septic line, you know, like, how, how problematic that can be. So it's like, here's a tree that sort of proverbially is impossible to get out of the ground. They, these are roots that you, you can't deal with on your own. And here's faith. So if you just had faith, just a little bit of faith, like a mustard seed, you could deal with even the most intractable problem. Forgiving a brother or sister who sinned against you, you don't need much faith to do that. You need to act on the faith you have. Standing guard against sin in your heart, lest you become a snare to other people, you've got the faith, you need to simply act on it. The point of verse 6 is not that faith is like a magical power that you can go around and just sort of willy-nilly plant trees in the ocean. Okay, he's using sort of proverbial, uh, pictorial language here to say faith is powerful when it acts on God's promises. Genuine faith can conquer bitterness. Genuine faith can forgive sinners who have wronged you. Genuine faith can go to war against sin's temptation. We've simply got to be humble enough to ask for it and bold enough to act on it. Again, do you see how Jesus puts together both humility and boldness? Humble enough to ask, give me faith, and bold enough to say, I'm going to act on the faith that you have already given Do you trust God? Do you really trust God to be able to transform your embittered heart? Enough to say, you know what, I'm going to, on faith, step out and say, I'm going to choose to forgive. Do you believe that the gospel is power enough to break patterns of sin? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit can grant life to someone who is spiritually dead? Do you believe that God can restore a broken relationship? Faith will then take a step and say, I believe God can, and I'm going to act and obey what he has told me to do. So verse 6 is not a a carte blanche, you know, like, hey, you can go do whatever you want with faith, mountain-moving, tree-planting faith. It's to say that the things that God has commanded you to do, 
by faith you can do. All right, so this is not just go do whatever, health, wealth, prosperity, name it and claim it. This is to say what has been said in verses 1 to 4, by faith you can do. That's important to get, right, so we don't misinterpret. Verse 6 is preceded by verses 1 to 5. It's not a blank check, but here's the point. A genuine disciple exercises faith, reliance on God's promises. I can't think of any feature that would distinguish a genuine Christian from a hypocrite. Uh, I can't think of any feature better than the, the feature of faith. We are justified by what? Faith and not works. If you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not actually a Christian. Right? If you're relying on your own works and your own efforts and your own goodness to save you, you're actually a Pharisee and not a disciple. And one of the ways to know that you have exercised saving faith in Jesus is you're exercising obedient faith every day, right? Like that's how faith works. Faith perseveres and faith acts. But let me come to a final distinguishing feature of a disciple. How do I know I'm a disciple or a Pharisee? Finally, we see that a disciple must view himself honestly. So verses 7 to 10, Jesus gives us a little, a little miniature parable. He starts off in verses 7 to 9, describing a fairly common situation. Okay, a guy has got a, got a slave, and uh, he owns a farm because there's, there's plowing and sheep involved. He's just got this one servant who, who works for him. And here's the scenario. The guy works all day long, and then he comes in. Says the master's not going to be like, all right, man, you've worked hard. Go ahead and just take it easy. I'll do, the, I'll do dinner tonight. No, the servant's job then is to come in and cook dinner and then serve dinner. And then and only then does he get to eat his own dinner. And by the way, the, the master is not going to be like, thank you so much for all you did today. No, that's just your job. That's the illustration, right? Like when you show up to work on time and clock in at 8 like you're supposed to, your boss does not come to you and be like, employee of the year, you showed up on time. Now, like kind of where employment's going now, you might get that. But generally speaking... Simply doing the, you know, the, the basic level of what is expected by your boss doesn't earn you a bunch of applause. Right? It's just what you're supposed to do. Right? He's paying you to show up at 8. You show up at 8. You clock out at 4. Like That's the minimum. Now, he might say, hey, thanks for a good job, but he's not somehow like indebted to you because you did the bare minimum. That's the illustration in verses 7 to 9. Now, Jesus is not, by the way, endorsing this kind of treatment of servants. He's simply appealing to what commonly happened. Uh, that's an important, uh, important point here. He's not saying, hey, it's great, you can just treat your servants like dirt. But he's recognizing that's how most people act, right? They're servants, they expect them to do their job, and they don't offer them any special thanks. So verse 9, doth he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. Uh, the master is not going to make himself indebted to the servant for the servant just doing his job. By the way, a little bit of cultural background here. He said, he could at least say thank you. It wouldn't kill him. The the idea of saying thank you here is to say that I am now socially indebted to you. It's not just about a social nicety of saying, hey, thanks for a good job today. What is described in verse 9 is the master saying, well, now because you've done your job, I am now indebted to you. No, No master is going to indebt himself to his servant, right, who's just doing his job. No employee will become indebted to the employer just because the employer did, uh, or the, the other way around, did what he was supposed to do. No slave receives a special reward for simply doing the minimum. And in the same way, no disciple receives merit or deserves grace for simply obeying the master. You might say, you know, I'm a pretty good Christian because I'm not causing anyone to stumble into sin. 
I'm a pretty good Christian. I forgave someone last week that I didn't really want to forgive. I'm a pretty good Christian. I exercise faith in Jesus. And you kind of begin to think that, give myself a pat on the back and give myself a gold star and, and think that God is going to, God is now obligated to bless me. And then you go to the doctor and you find out, man, I just got diagnosed with some horrible sickness. God, why did you do that to me? I'm such a good Christian. That reveals an attitude where you think that you do stuff for God and God does stuff for you. That reveals an attitude where you think that God now becomes your debtor because you simply did the minimum. I'll tell you, the, the attitude that's described in verses 7 to 10, uh, or that is warned against in 7 to 10, is rampant, right? We begin to think that God owes us. I went to church today, and then God gave me a flat tire on the way home. What? I don't deserve this. Listen, if we want to talk about what is deserved, what you deserve is eternal punishment. What we deserve is the wrath of God. What we deserve is separation from joy and from God's presence for all eternity in the place where there is unquenchable fire and darkness. And you say, even if I obeyed every commandment of God, you would still deserve hell because your heart is sinful. You see, here's our problem. Sin is not just things that I do or don't do. It's not just behavior. Sin is a nature that we inherit. You are born into this world with a sinful heart, with a sinful nature that you have inherited from your father, Adam. And to make matters worse, Adam was standing as your representative in the Garden of Eden, so his sin is as if you committed that. So you are already guilty in the eyes of God the moment you enter this world. So we are guilty in Adam. We have a sinful nature that we have inherited. And beyond that, we then just go off willy-nilly doing our own thing throughout life. We, we disobey God's commandments. Far from obeying everything he's commanded, it's more like this. We disobey just about everything he's commanded. And the times that we do obey, even the times we do obey God's commandments, our motives are tainted with sin. So the scenario that's described here is almost absurd. Even if you were to do everything that Jesus commanded, you would still be a servant who deserves nothing. Well, let's be honest. Who here has really done everything Jesus has commanded? Matthew 5, 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anybody want to say, yep, I've done that? Like, no, none of us would be that audacious to claim that I, I am that perfect. We deserve nothing, Right? So let us drive from our minds this notion that if I obey God, God is somehow obligated to bless me. God often does indeed choose to bless us far beyond what we deserve, but it's not because we deserve it, it's because he is gracious and kind and generous. Let's not confuse God's generosity with my deservedness. Right? Just because God's generous doesn't mean that, wow, I was a pretty good candidate for his generosity. If you begin to think that, look at some of the people that God has really blessed with financial wealth. And you'll realize, no, it has nothing to do with their deservedness, right? So here's this confession in verse 10. So likewise, ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, keeping sin out of your life, forgiving those who wrong you, exercising faith, even when you've done all of those things, say, we are unprofitable servants. Let's say, we are unworthy servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. By the way, Luke 17, verse 10 is a great proof text to show that works can never, ever save. Even if you did all the good works in the world, you're still an unprofitable servant. God in no way is obligated to do anything for us. Christian, on your best day, guess what? You are a sinner who is saved by God's grace. And on your worst day, 
You're a sinner who is saved by God's grace. Just as obedience does not merit grace, this is good news, by the way. Just as obedience does not merit grace, so disobedience does not remove it. Right? So the days that come along where you're like, man, I I stumbled and fell flat on my face. I I didn't forgive that person when I should have forgiven them, and I'm going to go back tomorrow and make that right. Or the times where you're like, I didn't trust God, and I held back in unbelief. If you're God's child, his grace is dependent on nothing except his generosity and his kindness, not on your deservedness. That's good news. That's encouraging news. I'm an unprofitable servant. A necessary confession if you're going to become a Christian. God owes me nothing. But also good news if you are a Christian. God owes me nothing, and yet he has lavished all of his kindness and his grace and his favor on me in Christ. We've got to keep this text together with something else Jesus said. Back, just flip back to Luke chapter 12 with me. Luke chapter 12. Verse 37. Even though Jesus has, uh, has just said, hey, no master is ever going to sit down and serve the servant. Right? That's just not how it works. Servants serve, masters don't. He says something incredibly encouraging in verse 37 of Luke 12. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, shall find watching. Verily, truly, I say to you that he will gird himself and make them sit down to me. Do you hear how similar that language is to what we just read? And will come forth and serve them. God is so gracious that even though we deserve no kindness from him, yet he is going to show it to us anyway. And God is so gracious that even though he is the master of heaven and earth, the day is going to come when he will reward us as his people, not again because we have earned it like we did good works and God's now obligated. No, simply because of his grace. That is incredible, guys. That is incredible that he would so kindly and generously reward us. Now think about how different that is than a Pharisee. How does a Pharisee think? Well, go over to Luke chapter 18 with me. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. So the disciple says, I, I'm an unworthy servant. God owes me nothing. And whoa, he's shown kindness to me. That's incredible. Luke 18, verse 9, and he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful unto me, the sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Pharisees like to look to their works and their merit to say, God, be impressed with what I've done. I went to church not just once today. I also went to Sunday school. And I came back on Sunday evening and Wednesday night. God, surely you are impressed. Where a disciple says, hey, God, you've commanded me to gather with your people. I'm going to do that because I delight to do it, not to try to earn something from God. There's a whole different mentality when you do something because you love someone versus doing something for someone because you're trying to get something out of them. Right? You ever have someone, you're like, man, they're being really nice, and then you're like, oh, they want something from me. Got it. Uh, that's the, 
God picks up on that very quickly, right? He's all-knowing. We don't serve God to get stuff out of him. We serve God because he's God. We don't serve God so we can earn favor from God. We serve him because he has shown favor to us in Christ. So here's the question I want you to just wrestle with as we come to the end. Are you a Pharisee or are you a disciple? Are you one that pushes people away from Jesus by your legalism and by your hypocrisy, maybe by by sin that's in your life? Or are you one who guards your heart carefully and guards and confesses sin, lest anything begin to grow up and defile others? Are you someone who forgives? You rebuke, you forgive. Are you someone who holds on to offenses and and, and, and takes less petty things begin to grow and bring division in your life? Are you someone who acts on faith or someone who just simply talks a good game, right? You step out and say, God's commanded me to do this. I believe him, and so therefore I'm going to do it. And finally, do you have a humble assessment of yourself? Do you think of God owing you, or do you recognize I'm nothing but an unprofitable, unworthy servant? Those are the marks of a disciple. And it's my prayer, it's my longing, that those would be the things that mark us as individual believers, but also the realities that would mark Cloverleaf Baptist Church. There would be a church that, yes, makes disciples, but we ourselves are disciples who follow Jesus. Father, may we live our lives for your glory. You're the king. We want to live for your worthiness and for your fame.